bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord from Romans twelve fourteen to 21. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm guessing that not many of you know the name Ken Gloss, but I assure you, if you were in the world of antique and rare books like I am, you would know who Ken Gloss is. Ken Gloss is the owner and proprietor of one of the oldest bookstores in the United States. It's called the Brattle Bookshop in Boston, Massachusetts. Ken still runs this store in his 70s, and over the last few years, Ken and I have become good friends. And Ken tells the absolute best stories. As you can imagine, for decades in the rare book business, not only has he had lots of different customers from every walk of life coming in, in and out of his store, but he's been to all kinds of homes and estates and all over the world, seeing people's libraries and their taste in books and meeting characters of every different kind. And Ken loves to tell stories about the people he's met. Believe it or not, Ken Gloss actually has a podcast all about antique and rare books. You don't look interested in this at all. His <laughs> podcast is amazing. He has thousands of listeners, and he tells some of his amazing stories as, as a part of, of the Brattlecast, where he talks about antique and rare books. I love this stuff, by the way, so stop judging me as I continue with my opening illustration. One of my favorite Ken Gloss stories is about a woman who would come into the store year after year on a regular basis and she would buy whatever bibles he had available she didn't care how old they were she didn't care what kind of condition they were in if ken had bibles in stock she would buy them so they sort of got to know this lady over the years and finally he decided one day to have a discussion what are you doing with all these bibles are you putting them all on shelves in your house are, are you putting them side by side and comparing them to one another are you giving them away to people that you love? What are you doing with all these Bibles? And he learned that she believed that the Bible, as God's Word, is literally meant to be spiritual nourishment for our souls. And so what this woman would do with those Bibles is she would tear out pages and she would eat them. She would ingest regularly pages from these Bibles, believing that, quite literally, the Bible is spiritual nourishment from God. Now, my prayer for us as we've started the year in Romans 12 has been somewhat similar to that. I've been praying that we would begin this year with this very practical chapter of Scripture and find it to be some, some very helpful spiritual nourishment for our souls. 
that as we plan out what this next year looks like, as we set some goals, as we think about things we, we wish we would have done better last year, that this practical chapter would nourish us and would be something that we could build our lives on further this year. In fact, let me tell you how I'm going to use Romans 12 this year. Every Monday morning, this is going to be my Bible reading. I'm going to read Romans 12 every single Monday this entire year. This is not the last day that I will be in this chapter, and I hope it's not the last day that you will be in this chapter because I am convinced that the Lord will use it every single time I read it to show me something new and to show me something that applies directly to something that I'm dealing with right then and there in the moment on that Monday morning when I read it. So I want to challenge you to take this chapter and to use it as a part, a regular part of your spiritual diet. Not literally, okay? Don't, don't tear out the pages and eat them. But I want to encourage you to use Romans 12 as a regular part of your spiritual diet this year as I intend to do. Now as we come to the last part of this chapter and the last section, we've talked throughout the last few weeks how practical Paul's words here are. And I love the way he does in, in what we're reading today, the same thing we saw last week, when he talks about things that we should not do as a part of our Christian character and our Christian living. He then often follows it up by things that we should do. I think about this as a parent. This is an area where I could be a lot better as a parent, not just telling my kids what they shouldn't do or what they shouldn't have done, right? But teaching them and imparting to them more often how they should live and what they should do and how to be more productive in a positive way. And Paul does that throughout this chapter. He'll say, we should not do this. We should not have this attitude. But instead, this is then how we should live. What Paul does here is very similar to what we saw this summer when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. Several different parts of the Sermon on the Mount were very practical like that, where Jesus would say, this then is how we ought to live. And so as we finish out this practical chapter, I pray today that these last verses, which may be some of the hardest, the most difficult to put into practice, as a part of our spiritual diet, will be of great benefit to us as we practically live out our faith together this year. Now last week, if you were here and remember, there were 12 different commands that we talked about. And the language that Paul used in that section, it really was the, the language of command. These are not options. These are things that we should be doing, we must be doing as a matter of obedience. And I can't believe I did this to you, but last Sunday, because there were 12 commands, my message had 12 points. Do you remember that? I can't believe that I did that to you. This Sunday, don't worry, there's only 11, okay? Only 11 commands, only 11 points. Hey, it could have been 23. I could have put them all together. But I say that so that we see the, the continuation here as Paul is continuing in the same thought to list out these commands and, and things that, that, that ought to be a part of our Christian character and living as individuals, but also as a Christ-like community, as the church serving the Lord together. So here's the first command. And as I said, these are some of the hardest instructions yet. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We might read those who persecute you literally as those who seek to harm you, those who seek to do harm to you. Bless them, do not curse them. One scholar said it this way, that the previous section 
was Paul talking to people who were suffering together and saying, this is how you live together in your relationships. Now he's talking to them about as they suffer, how they're supposed to relate to those who are bringing the suffering upon them. And he says here in the beginning of this section, bless, pray that God blesses, we might say, those who seek to do you harm. Bless them and do not curse them. Have you ever known in your life that somebody is actively looking for you to fail? Somebody is actually cheering that you would not succeed and, and hoping that whatever you've, you've set your mind to, you've set your life to, that you won't accomplish it, that, that they, are, they are looking for you to fail. I know that, that I've felt that before from people. Let me ask you an even harder question. Have you ever been that person? Been, been the person who is actively hoping that somebody else will fail somebody else will fall cheering against them it's an easy and, and probably a very natural inclination for us to think like that especially if we're talking about somebody who seeks to do us harm well of course we want to see them not succeed if their goal is to do us harm but paul says bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse which means more than just not cursing them and saying bad things about them. It's more than just biting our tongue. He says we should bless them. He says we should actively be pursuing their good. And we should actively be praying that good things will happen for the people and to the people who are looking to do harm to us, who persecute us. He doesn't just say that here, but as we see through these last verses, it's a theme that we actively seek the good even of our enemies. And this is a hard way to live. And I submit to you, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. There is no way we can live this way without the strength of the Holy Spirit moving in us. But, but as transformed people with renewed minds, the way Paul began this chapter, it is possible when we abide in Christ and when the Spirit moves in and through us. We can do this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then he continues, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. Now I think that the first command may be harder than the second when we consider these two. Because to rejoice with someone who rejoices means we take joy in their success without being jealous without being envious, without falling into the comparison trap and saying, why did good happen to them and not to me? But to rejoice with someone who re is rejoicing is to take joy in their successes even if, if that kind of good has not yet happened to us. And then he says, also mourn with those who mourn, which is also a hard command to practice, especially because in some circumstances, we feel like this may be an awkward thing to put into practice. We have a tendency, I've had this tendency, when we know somebody is mourning, when we know somebody is grieving, they're suffering, they're hurting, they've dealt with a loss, we have a tendency to not think as much about them as we do ourselves, and we think, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say to that person when I talk to them. I've been asked to, to visit with them. They've sent me a text message. I'm going to call them on the phone or I'm, I'm, I'm in, in the middle of this now and I don't know what I'm supposed to say. 
Let me give you some practical advice that I've picked up as a pastor, but also just as, as a person who's been able to, to walk alongside lots of people who have suffered. When you're not sure what to say, say as little as possible, okay? One of the best things we can do when someone is suffering and hurting and mourning is just to practice presence, just to be there, just that they would know that I'm here with you. I'm available at a moment's notice. If we need to sit in silence, I will sit in that awkward silence and it will be okay. And if I'm going to say something, rather than trying to, to find the perfect thing to say or, or to, to just fill the, the awkwardness with noise, one of the best things we can say when someone's hurting is just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're hurting and I'm here for you. Mourn with those who mourn as someone who genuinely cares. And we might be able to summarize these two commands like this. Dance with those who are dancing for joy. Sing with those who are singing out their rejoicing. Shed tears with those whose hearts are hurting. And enter into the suffering of those who are suffering. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. What's really at the heart of this language is be of the same mind. Share the same mind as you look out for the good of one another. And, and, and I do think Paul here is talking to the community. He's talking to the church about living in harmony with each other. But remember, this section has eyes to what, those who are outside of the community. And so, so the idea here is we want to live and demonstrate such a, a deep sense of unity and harmony and oneness and shared love and compassion and kindness that the world around us that's lost in darkness will see the light emanating from us, from our community, because of the way we love each other. In fact, the language here reminds me of Jesus' prayer in John 17. If you remember that beautiful prayer, Jesus begins by praying for his own relationship with the Father. Then he prays for his disciples who were following him at the time. But then he prays for us. In John 17, Jesus prays, and I, I pray for all of those who will believe in the message about me because of the message my disciples are sharing. And why are we here today? Because those first disciples were faithful and they shared the message with others who shared the message with others who shared the message and we believe because of that faithfulness today. And Jesus' prayer for those of us who believe now was this, Lord, I pray that they might be one. And he prayed, I'm, I pray that they might be one like you and I are one, like Father and Son are one. Jesus said, I pray that my people will experience the same kind of unity and harmony. And that's what it means to live in harmony with one another so that others might be able to see unity like they can't see in any other place. And as a part of this living in harmony with each other, Paul continues, and do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do you remember the story from Paul's letter to the Galatians of that time when Paul and Peter got into a fight? Do you remember that? That's really not what happened. They didn't really get into a fight. What happened is that Paul got angry at something Peter was doing, and he called him out in front of everybody there in Galatia. 
And the thing that Paul was upset about was that Peter had become unwilling to sit at the table with the Gentile Christians like he would sit at the table with the Jewish Christians. And Paul got so upset because those Gentile Christians had noticed and they had felt like one of the apostles was now treating them like second-class citizens. And perhaps Paul should have taken Peter aside and dealt with this privately, but he didn't. He called him out in front of everybody and he said, you have dishonored your brothers and sisters by choosing to sit at the cool table, right? Choosing to sit at that table and not at theirs. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with anyone, even with people of low position. And if Paul modeled this, Jesus modeled this even more. By the very fact that Jesus left the heavenly realms and he descended to earth and he put on flesh like our flesh to become one of us shows us Christ's example to, to associate with lowful people of low positions, sinners like us. Jesus associated with us. He came and he dwelt among us. But Jesus also modeled this in his ministry and the way that he related to people. With that physical body in which Jesus lived, his eyes rested gently on outcasts. His arms welcomed children. His fingers touched lepers and the eyes of the blind. His feet were made dirty and calloused as he walked through the cities, towns, and the remote villages. His vocal cords proclaimed justice for the poor, the oppressed, and the captive. And eventually his hands bore the signs of divine sacrifice as he atoned for our sins on the cross. When we want to see an example of one who is willing to associate with people from any walk of life, we look to Jesus and we look to the cross and the salvation that we have in him. And by that same token, we make as a part of our character, rather than being prideful, we are willing to associate with people of low position, which he follows up with the next command, do not be conceited. I can't stand to be around conceited people, but let's be honest, we've all been that in one way or another at some point in our lives. What he says here reminds me of what he said back in verse 3. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to, but instead think of yourselves with sober judgment. Look at, at yourself and use a divine measurement, as we said that week, where you don't overestimate yourself, but you also don't underestimate yourself. But you see yourself with the value that God has ascribed to your life, while also not becoming conceited and puffed up and prideful in the process. An old American biblical commentator, William Hendrickson, said, because we know that our own motives are not always pure and holy, perhaps one of the most spiritual prayers that a Christian can utter is to say, oh Lord, please forgive my good deeds. To not only say, Lord, forgive my sins, but also, Lord, forgive my, my good deeds whenever I've done something good and righteous, but, but ultimately my motives were about elevating myself and not for your own glory and your own good. Ultimately, this command, do not be conceited, means it's never supposed to be about us. If we become prideful in our gifts, 
if we become prideful in our service, if we become prideful in our contribution, we become like a paintbrush who says to the artist, this is my work, not yours. And that's not how God created us to live. We were created to do good works in Christ Jesus so that his name might be glorified. And thus the reminder is, do not be conceited. Now as we move to the second half of the commands, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets hard. Connecting back to that command, bless those who persecute you, who seek to do you harm. Do not curse them. Now Paul says in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Even those who seek to harm you, do not repay anyone evil for evil. It's amazing how anytime I'm, I'm preaching or teaching, something happens to me either the week before or the week after I preach and teach where I am forced to put this into practice, okay? And this week it happened to me in, in, in a story I'm going to tell you that you're going to think is funny, and I think it's funny too, but in the moment I was not laughing, okay? And here's what happened. So I have this, among all the antiques I collect, I have this beautiful antique French clock. And I, I'm not a hoarder, by the way. Can I just remind you of that, okay? No matter what my wife says, most of the time if I get a new antique, then something else I've had goes away, all right? I'm not a hoarder, but I do have some really cool old stuff. And I have this antique French clock that's over 100 years old. And my favorite thing about this clock is not just that it's beautiful, but that it still works. Until about two weeks ago, something, some small little piece broke and, and the clock is no longer working and I don't know how to fix it. And so I found this, um, this, this shop here in Tulsa that fixes old clocks and I took it there and, and get an estimate. What kind of work can you do? And so the young lady looked at it all and she said, yeah, we can fix this. But she was going over the options with me and she said, if you take this option, this clock's going to be guaranteed to work for at least another 20 or 30 years. And then she said, and after that, if it breaks, it won't be your problem. It'll be whoever inherits it. It'll be their problem. And I was like, how old do you think I am? 20 or 30 years, let's do the math. At the top line, that's 74. Now, I'm not going to make judgments around the room, but I think some of us have passed that, and we're still doing fine. The next person's problem, 20 or 30 years, I, it, it's funny now, but in the moment, it didn't hit me right. But, but, but here's my application of this verse. I forgive her too, okay? She might not get a tip when I pick up my clock, but I forgive her too, and, and I am, am not allowed to return or repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Unless we think that Paul is just speaking about a one-time thing here, as we did with last one of the parts last week, let me show you for a moment the consistency of Scripture on this command. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul wrote on a different occasion to the Thessalonians, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And then another apostle, Peter, 
Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Repay evil with blessing, or as the last verse we look at today says, overcome evil with good. This is a consistent teaching of Scripture. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But listen, Scripture calls us to even more than that. Not just that we wouldn't make things worse or that we wouldn't launch back at somebody when they launch at us. Scripture consistently calls us to be peacemakers. And to be a peacemaker is more than just to not react. It's to take the initiative to forgive. It's to take the initiative to make peace. And let me just tell you, in our family, and since this is his last Sunday before he goes back to his university, in our family, the number one peacemaker is Aiden. It's something he is gifted at, he is good at. But whether or not it's our gift, it's our calling, it's our command to be peacemakers. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then he continues... And, and we're going to take the next two together here quickly because I think they help us understand the other. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, we could easily misunderstand this as Paul saying, be a people pleaser. Just, just try to do whatever, whatever is right in other people's eyes and make everybody happy. That is a, a fool's errand. That is an impossible task. Paul is not saying here that we can, can have a, a convenient way of changing truth because it fits us in the moment. No, what he's saying is live your public lives in an honorable way at all times so that others, when they see you and they see the way you live your lives and the honor that you show to them, they will glorify God. Live your public lives in an honorable way. In fact, we can really summarize the, the commands of the apostles over and over as honor everyone. Honor your family, honor your friend, honor your enemy, honor those who persecute you. Show honor to everyone. Your brother and sister, your Gentile brother, your Jewish brother, the person who's not in the community. Honor everyone. And, and to help us understand this more is the next verse, verse 18 if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I don't know about you, but I appreciate the qualifiers here. Because when Paul says, if it is possible, it's a reminder that it's not always possible. It's not always possible to live at peace with everyone. But the second qualifier doesn't give us a way out of that. Instead, it says, but what is possible as far as it depends on us, to whatever level God allows us to have control in terms of living at peace with everyone, we can do our part. We can do our part as much as it depends on us to live in harmony with others and to live at peace with others. My wife has said this to all of our children, each and every one of them since they were very little, and she says it to them still all the time as they're growing up. She says, you can't control what anybody else does. You can't control what your brother did or what your sister did or what that kid at school did. The only person you can control is you, and your reaction is on you. Your behavior is on you. And Paul, in, a, in, in sort of a parental way, is saying the same thing. As much as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. I think it's important to remember 
These commands were not given to people living in an ideal situation any more than we are. It's not like they were living in a a utopia as Christians in the Roman Empire in the city of Rome. They weren't. But even in the sinful times and strange times in which they were living, Paul gave them these commands from the Holy Spirit. And they're commands for us because they're from the Holy Spirit. They're commands for us as the church, even when we're not in ideal situations. Be careful to do what is right in front of others and If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then he gets a little bit more specific as we come to the last commands. Do not take revenge. And it was nice of Paul to say, my dear friends here. Some of your translations will say beloved or my brothers and sisters. I I hear Paul softening this a little bit by saying, "And, and brothers, sisters, I know this is hard. We're all in this thing together. I know this is hard. But do not take revenge. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, and and this line is written in multiple places in Scripture, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. The true disciple of Jesus Christ follows Christ's example, and just as he did not take revenge, we also don't take revenge. And when it comes to leaving room for God's wrath, There's a couple ways that might happen. It might happen that in this life, someone who has wronged us or wronged someone we love will meet the consequences for that. In fact, that's what the next chapter is about. Romans 13 says, sometimes the law, sometimes the government will actually bring about consequences and will punish people when they do wrong. But there's also this understanding in here that the Lord says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay that we might not always see justice in this life and we might not always see people face consequences in this life but if that doesn't happen we have the reminder and the promise from God that someday whether in this life or the next everything that is in darkness will come into the light and every one of our sins will be found out and God will make everything that is wrong right when that day comes when there's no darkness left at all. I hope you believe that. And even when it feels like justice isn't happening before our eyes, we have the reminder that God has promised to make things right in the end. And so, remember he follows up a do not command within this is how, this then is how you should live. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink and in doing this you will heap burning coals on his head the most biblical thing I can do regarding my enemies the most biblical thing I can do regarding those who seek to harm me is to pray for them and then the second is to show them kindness and then the third is to serve them The most biblical things I can do for my enemy is to pray for my enemy, to show kindness to my enemy, and to serve my enemy. And Paul says when we do this, it will be like we are heaping burning coals on his head, which we also can hear in the wrong way. We can hear that with a little bit too much self-satisfaction. It's like, I like the sound of that. (laughs) Turn over that bucket of hot coals on my enemy's head and that hurts. 
He's going to suffer for the evil that he's done. But all we have to do is look back to the Hebrew scriptures and see this metaphor of burning coals as the language of repentance. And here's really what I think Paul is saying, because Paul knows this personally. He was the persecutor. He was the one who set himself up as an enemy of the people of faith and of the church. But he experienced the hot coals of repentance being poured on his head, poured on his head. And he repented of his sin. He was forgiven. And the very people that, be, that once he considered to be his enemies became his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's saying here, the very person who seeks to do you harm, who your inclination is going to be to seek revenge and to curse, might someday become your brother or sister in Christ if they experience the same repentance that you've experienced. And here's the way this all wraps up. As a summary statement with all of these hard commands here at the end of the chapter, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are many people who believe it's possible to use evil means to accomplish good ends. But I say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, and to each and every one of you today, this is not the way. Using evil to accomplish good is not the way. Instead, the way is overcome evil with good in this there is no middle way we always seek the good as followers of christ we don't keep even the smallest toe of our foot on the side of evil but instead through the righteousness of jesus christ the obedient disciple who's walking in a christ-like manner can overcome evil with good so I'm going to close this morning with two quotes back to back. I almost never do this, but I like both of them, and I think they're a good place to end as we conclude this chapter. When it comes to overcoming evil with good, how does one fight darkness? Not with one's fist. You don't chase darkness out of the room with a broom. You turn on a light. I've shared that quote with you before. That's from Anthony DeMello. The last quote reminding us do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good comes from the great John Stott. To repay evil for evil is to be overcome by it. To repay good for evil is to overcome evil with good. This is the way of the cross. Is that not exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us? He overcame evil with good, the greatest good. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins and listen how did he overcome evil he defeated sin on the cross and he defeated death by his resurrection the good news of jesus christ for us today is the good news that we can walk in this obedience too would you pray with me lord today we give you thanks that in each one of these sundays as we've gone through this very practical chapter of the new testament we've been able to say with full confidence that Jesus Christ is our example. Today, my prayer is that it would be as simple as that, that we would look to Christ and the cross and see 
the clearest example of sacrificial love, of humbling oneself, of overcoming evil with good. And the Lord, as we look to the cross, we would surrender our lives to that, that truth of, of, of your defeating sin and death. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never taken that step of surrender, Lord, that today that conviction would be so strong in their heart that they can't resist it. But they just know that they today are, are, are called to surrender their life to you. But I pray for all of us, Lord, that Christ would also be our example in the way that he lived, what he modeled for us in his attitudes, his speech, and his actions. And Lord, that we would be people who walk in the light just as you have given us the light and that we would overcome evil with good. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.